I'll invite you to take a copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 23, beginning in verse 15, and we'll read through all of chapter 24, verse 22. If you're visiting with us, um, we're in the midst of a series on the book of Deuteronomy, working our way through the entire book together. This morning is a little different. Uh, We're picking up the pace a bit, covering a, a bigger section of Deuteronomy than we typically do. And I'm doing that because uh, I want us to see the larger concern holding um, all of these various laws together. Okay, so that's why we're looking at a larger chunk today. So we won't be getting into all of the details as we often do, but we're going to have a more of a bird's eye view of our passage uh, today. But looking at Deuteronomy 23, beginning in verse 15, we'll read through all of chapter 24. Before we do so, let me remind you that this is uh, the word of the living God. Uh, He is speaking to us this morning, so let's be sure to listen to him. You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. You He shall dwell with you in your midst in the place that he shall choose Within one of your towns, wherever it suits him, you shall not wrong him. None of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute, and none of the sons of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. You shall not bring the fee of a prostitute or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord your God in payment for any vow, for both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest. That the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house, And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord." You shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. 
When a man is, a new, is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any public duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. No one shall take a mill or an upper millstone in pledge, for that would be taking a life in pledge. If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Take care in a case of leprous disease to be very careful to do according to all that the Levitical priests shall direct you. As I commanded them, so you shall be careful to do. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way as you came out of Egypt. When you make your neighbor alone of any sort, you shall not go into his house to collect his pledge. You shall stand outside and the man to whom you make the loan shall Bring the pledge out to you. And if he is a poor man, you shall not sleep in his pledge. You shall restore to him the pledge as the sun sets, that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you. And it shall be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment and pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. I better take another drink of water after that. there's one occasion in the Gospels where Jesus directs attention to himself, to his own character. He describes what he is like. Famous words, I'm sure you're familiar with them, but I wonder if we've stopped to think about their significance when Jesus said, I am gentle and lowly, in heart, or gentle and humble in heart. This is the one time Jesus draws attention to what he is like, gentle and humble. And consider the fact that God's purpose in our salvation is to conform us to the moral image of our elder brother Jesus. God's will for us is to be like Jesus. And that means, among other things, that God wants to work humility into our lives. 
Now, if you're anything like me, growing down in humility is very, very difficult because pride resists it at every turn. And so sometimes we need to be, we need to be pressed down onto our knees and thus be closer to Jesus. And I want to suggest to you this morning that this is, that's precisely what this passage is intended to do. It's intended to push us down onto the ground and to work humility uh, into our lives. We're looking at a bunch of different rules and laws that God gave to his people uh, in the Old Testament here. And uh, all of them show a special concern for the weak for the vulnerable in Israel, people in vulnerable situations. That is, that is the concern holding all of these laws together. The concern is for the dignity of others. And these laws describe what respect looks like in action. And so let's walk through uh, the passage, again, getting a bird's eye view of this controlling concern for the weak, and then we'll consider a call to humility at the end. I have a sense already that we're going to be feeling like we're drinking from a fire hydrant this morning. So uh, let's get going and, and go through this as quickly as we can. Beginning with chapter 23, verses 15 through 16, it begins with a law regarding runaway slaves. They were to be protected and provided for. And I looked at different commentaries on this passage. I read words like, this legislation is unique, radical, astonishing, and extraordinary because there was nothing like it in the ancient Near Eastern world. In other societies, runaway slaves were subject to extreme penalties, sometimes death, and anyone harboring runaway slaves was also subject to severe penalties. So, for example, the Code of Hammurabi had the death penalty for those who harbored runaway slaves. As you notice the contrast, in contrast, the law that we just read later on in this passage says that man-stealing, or what we today might refer to as human trafficking, is a crime punishable by death. And God's people are called to be a refuge for runaway slaves, people fleeing from tyranny and oppression. After all, as we've seen in the book of Deuteronomy, all of God's people are former slaves who have been set free from the worst kind of tyranny. So this is no surprise that this is a concern for God's people. But there's something even more remarkable in chapter 23, verses 15 and 16, where it says that runaway slaves, take a look at the language, shall dwell in the place that he shall choose within your towns wherever it suits him. Now, in Deuteronomy, this language of place he shall choose, it, if you've been with us, that should ring a bell. This is the language of divine prerogative. It's the language Moses otherwise exclusively reserves for Yahweh, for the Lord, and his divine right to choose the place where he will cause his name to dwell. 
So if you've, if you've read through Deuteronomy, if you've listened to Deuteronomy up to this point, you've heard this phrase about 20 times. The place that he shall choose. The place that he shall choose. Over and over and over again, always referring to the Lord God and his divine right. And here it refers to the place where runaway slaves choose to dwell. You see the point? It is the slave who makes this lordly, royal decision. That's, that's really something. But again, it shouldn't surprise us if we know the God of Israel who lifts up the lowly and seats them with princes. We shouldn't be surprised if we know the God who in Christ himself became a servant to lay down his life for us so that with him we could be exalted in glory. In verses 19 and 20, uh, we have a rule that deals with charging interest on loans. And the point is pretty straightforward and clear. God's people were not to make loans with one another charging interest. It's okay, however, for Israelites to charge interest with foreigners, presumably for business purposes. There's debate about whether this law restricts all kinds of interest loans among Israelites, but the clear concern of this passage is for someone in a difficult situation, someone who is experiencing financial hardship, someone who has come into a place of poverty within Israel, and the purpose of this law is to ex uh, protect them from the exploitation uh, of loans with ridiculous interest rates to keep them from becoming slaves to a lender. Now throughout history, one of the easiest ways for wealthy people to make money has been to lend money to people who are in desperate situations, who are basically forced to agree to loan uh, loans with interest rates that other people wouldn't ever possibly take. Throughout history, that's one of the ways that the rich get richer and poor people get stuck in poverty. You can still see this kind of thing happening today. I remember the route I used to take to seminary in Pittsburgh. I would go through certain neighborhoods that were uh, uh, you know, struggling economically. And there were often these, these places for fast cash where you could get money taken out, but you then would pay ridiculous interest rates. But the Lord strictly forbids the practice of predatory loans among his people. A fellow Israelite is, who is in need is not a customer, but a human being, and even more than that, a brother in need. And so positively, the law requires generosity by offering interest-free loans to the poor. We've already seen this in Deuteronomy back in chapter 15 verses 7 and 8 where it says if among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against listen to the language your poor brother but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need whatever it may be. Brothers and sisters, likewise in the church today, God's people are called to be generous to their poor, to their brothers and sisters. We, we should certainly 
the very least, never seek to profit from the misfortune of another Christian or another human being for that matter. Instead, we're called to be open-handed to help fellow believers in particular whenever needs arise within the community of those who call upon the name of the Lord. Uh, In verses 21 uh, through 23, another rule that has to do with the payment of vows. And what's in view is unfortunately an all-too-common scenario. A well-meaning brother or sister in Christ tells us that they will that they will do this or that for us, but then they, they don't follow through. And so one is the recipient of the promise is left waiting and wondering about when that word will be fulfilled, perhaps without any explanation given for the delay, waiting for a word to be fulfilled. And if we play that scenario out, then the one waiting has to eventually repeat the request, reminding the one who made the promise of their promise, and the whole, the whole thing is dehumanizing. The whole thing is humiliating, and it's never, it's never good for the relationship, and, and it reflects a proud and selfish heart that is oblivious to the dignity of the person waiting for the other to follow through and keep their word. It is oblivious to the disrespect that it clearly communicates. But in verse 21, God will not have his, his name dishonored like this. So he calls the failure what it is, a sin. Now, of course, vows are not required, as it says here. And you remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts and how that plays out. But when a, when a legitimate vow is made, it needs to be kept. Right? Respect is shown in the prompt keeping of our word to others so how much more in a case with God when when we make a vow to him see the main concern here is for God's own dignity so brothers and and sisters this the simple principle of this law that we need to hear today is we we need to keep our commitments We, we live in a world of broken commitments don't we and being reliable is one way we honor the dignity of others and we show them the respect that they deserve. Verses 24 and 25 show God's concern to protect the hungry and the private property rights of landowners at the very same time. I think God's wisdom is on display in this particular law. Because the, the abuse of generosity is, I think, what's directly in view here. We, we've already seen that the law requires generous hospitality. Right? That, that uh, what's mine is available to you. You have access to my resources whenever a true need arises. And in an agricultural community, that meant that a hungry person could go into their neighbor's field or vineyard and eat their fill. That's something, isn't it? Think about it. If you lived within Israel and you were in need, you could go onto your neighbor's property and eat as much grain or grapes as you desired. But the law strictly distinguishes here between meeting needs 
and taking advantage. Right? You, couldn't, you couldn't go onto your neighbor's property and, and put sickle to the grain. You couldn't take a bag along with you and eat your fill and then fill up your bag and, and be on your way with grapes from his vineyard. The person who does this displays disregard for the dignity of the landowner. Disregard for the respect of his property, whether it's taking advantage of someone's time or resources. This kind of thing happens all of the time. People confuse the generosity of others as a, as a blank check. This is a, another expression of the prideful disregard of the dignity of another. And we get into chapter 24, and it begins with a divorce scenario. Uh, in view is a permitted divorce, permitted under the Mosaic law, permitted, you remember, because of the words of the Lord Jesus, due to the hardness of Israelite hearts. And like the, like the rest of these rules this morning, we're just kind of, I feel like we're skating on the very surface of things. But I want you to notice that the concern, once again, is the effect of the divorce as it endangers the dignity and the well-being of women in Israelite society. Now, the stipulations here are designed specifically to protect the divorced woman's dignity and her status within the community, doing so with a defined process that had to be followed. A divorce isn't commanded here, but if it is pursued, the following process had to be followed. First of all, there had to be a serious cause. And here's where we could have a whole sermon on, well, how, how should we understand uh, this, this serious cause? What is meant by some uncleanness? There's debate about what's in view here. It doesn't look like it's adultery because we've already seen previously in, in Deuteronomy that adultery was punishable by death. But the point is, there must be a serious cause. And after that, an official document, called here Certificate of Divorce, had to be placed in the woman's hand for her protection. It's a legal protection designed to protect certain rights. And then it involved a formal public dismissal. The husband sending her out of the house is formulaic language for an official action. And then the following prohibition of remarriage, it's also a matter of maintaining dignity. The concern is for the dignity and public status of the wife. Right? Being able to remarry would, would suggest that the relationship is really entirely up to the whims of the husband. He can send her away. He can call her back whenever he pleases. He can decide when she needs to go and he can decide when to bring her back as though she were a piece of property to be, to be dispensed and retrieved at will. We have, we have to reckon with the historical context here to appreciate the purpose of this law. Because in a world where men really could divorce wife on whim for absolutely anything without any legal process whatsoever, which would leave a woman effectively in society without nothing, completely destitute, and the possibility that at any given point in the future the man could come back 
and claim the, the wife and the kids and any assets that she might possess as her own, you could see how this left women very vulnerable and closed the possibility of remarriage from, from them. Well, this legislation, on the other hand, required serious reason for divorce, formal legal documents, and it did not allow for remarriage. Right? The concern is clearly for the dignity and protection of women in Israelite society. Verse 5 guarantees uh, one year off for a newlywed from military or public service. And the reason being is so that he can, he can be free at home, happy with his wife. I think this law is concerned for the, the welfare of both the husband and the wife as they uh, begin a new life together in a new home. Verses 16 through 15 uh, taken together show a concern for maintaining the dignity and peace of the needy. Since God is the helper of the helpless, Israel must care for the needy among them. So take a look at verse 7, which strictly forbids man-stealing or human trafficking. Man-stealing is forbidden, again, because people are not merchandise to be bought and sold. And if we backtrack to chapter 23 verses 17 through 18, we find ruled out the closely related issue of prostitution. Now granted in this context, there's a, there's a cultic religious element that's in view here, but it was, still, it was still transactional. People were being bought and sold, and at the same time, people were being profoundly dehumanized. This is how, this is how cultic temples were funded in the ancient Near East, through cultic prostitution. And the same thing happens today, though, when people are literally stolen and then forced to work in an industry to make money in some of the most degrading and dehumanizing ways imaginable. Now, back in chapter 24, verses 8 and 9, just picking up the pace here, Care for the entire community requires diligence and dealing with leprosy at the individual level. Verses 10 through 13, dignity is again the issue. The dignity of a poor brother who has given a pledge as a security for some kind of loan or help. And even in this situation, the, poor, the dignity of the poor man is being jealously protected. The way things are carried out, the way things are done, must not compromise the man's dignity. No one should be deprived of things necessary for life, whether it's a millstone, that's the concern in verse 6, or a cover or a cloak used when one is sleeping. That's the issue in verses 10 through 13. Perhaps those are the only things that the poor man had to offer up as his pledge and the lender in this situation, you see, he has a duty in keeping with the dignity of that poor man not to keep that covering when his life and well-being depend upon it. You see the intent of the law? Verses 10 and 11 give particular details about what loving the neighbor looks like in this kind of situation. Isn't this fascinating? When the lender comes to collect his debt, even the way that he approaches the man's home is significant. 
Where he stands communicates something. If he just barges right into the poor man's home demanding payment, he has violated the dignity of the poor. Right? Barging in communicates that he does not see this poor man as his equal or his brother. So again, dignity. Dignity is the concern. In this case, the dignity of a poor brother. Verses 14 and 15, respecting the dignity of a brother involves prompt or timely payment for services rendered. Right? Timely compensation is another way of showing uh, dignity of, uh, for, of a laborer, particularly those who are, who are day laborers who might be depending upon uh, wages earned day by day. And then in verses 16 through 18, the issue now is to make sure that justice is rendered in Israel. No one dies for the sins of another. Each is judged for his own sin. But did you notice this includes the concern, rendering justice for the helpless, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. Notice that concern once again for the vulnerable and weak. And so in verses 19 through 22, we have an expression of we could call the law of love. Take a look at those verses with me again. I'm going to read them for us. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you and all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. Did you notice that rep uh, repetition three times of um, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow? The law commands us, brothers and sisters, to hold loosely to the things that we think belong to us. The law commands us to hold on to those things loosely so that we are prepared and ready to share with others. As the farmer makes his way through the field, as he reaps his harvest, beats his olive trees, gathers his grapes, he's to get what he can on his first run through. But knowing that a second pass will claim absolutely everything, he, he must refrain from doing so. Why? So that those who are in need may be provided for. You see, God's people do not live with a consumer mindset. We don't live with a consumer mindset. We do not live to consume everything that comes across our path. We do, not, we do not live to just build up our storehouses. We instead live self-consciously as stewards. We know that, that whatever we have has been given to us by an incredibly gracious God. And so we don't look to just claim and devour everything that we can get our hands on. We live as stewards, grateful recipients of all that we have with a view to sharing what we've been given with others. And so I think a good question to ask ourselves is, what are the fields, what are the vineyards, what are the olive trees 
that you can be sharing with someone in need right now. Okay, we just sprinted through a lot. And so surveying all of those laws as a whole, I think it's, I think it's clear that the common concern of this passage is indeed the dignity of others. And perhaps, if you're like me, as you go through these laws, you might run to think about how often you have not been afforded this kind of treatment. We can, we can go through this passage and think, sure, I struggle all the time to get people to do what they told me they would do. <laughs> I struggle all the time with abuses of my generosity and resources as if my time and resources belonged to them. And when I've done work for someone, perhaps I haven't received a, a quick compensation. You know, my own dignity has been violated, and, and I'm sure... I'm sure that's true. We're we're sinners living among sinners, right? But sin being universal, perhaps we ought to begin with ourselves, as Jesus teaches us to do. Perhaps as we read these laws, we, we hear a stinging indictment of our own disregard for the dignity of others. Perhaps it exposes our own pride and self-centeredness. And brothers and sisters, that is in fact the issue in, in this passage. Pride. If in each case we have a description of only the most basic and common respect for the dignity of another human being, how much more should these things mark the lives of those who belong to Jesus and who in him belong to one another. After all, we relate to one another not not merely as fellow human beings bearing the image of God, though that's reason enough to respect the dignity of another human being, but, but we are called to live together as brothers and sisters in one family, in one household, called to love one another as we have been loved. And so if these laws are, are just the basic requirement expected among human beings, how much more should these things be evident in the body of Christ? With that in mind, let's just reflect for a minute on the, the very strong relationship between the concerns in Deuteronomy 23 and 24 and some of the ethical instruction given to us in the New Testament. Have you ever noticed how particular the apostles sometimes are with ethical instruction? Have you ever noticed how particular and specific Paul is sometimes? But isn't that precisely what we find here in the book of Deuteronomy? Right, Leaving olives and grapes where they are. Responding promptly to requests for help. Paying laborers just wages in a timely manner, and on and on and on. These laws remind us that God is, in fact, deeply concerned with the nitty-gritty details of our lives. In fact, isn't this exactly what God's Word does? Dividing joint and marrow to expose the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. You see, the issue in Deuteronomy, as it is with the rest of the Bible, is what it exposes about our heart. 
oblivious to the need of our brothers. Yes, so, so often. But the issue we need to appreciate is rooted in pride. Just old, ugly pride. Convicted, convinced that, that we are, in fact, more important and significant than our brother. We, we, think that, we think that they must serve our agenda, that they must live by our schedule. They will, they will hear from me when I feel like getting back to them. They, they will get what's needed when I'm good and ready to give it. They will come and go at my call. That's pride speaking. In each case, in each of these, in these different rules, it is only the basic requirement of respecting the dignity of a human being that is laid out here. But again, how much more should this be true among those who are bound to one another as brothers and sisters who are being conformed to the image of our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ? So again, we come back full circle. The issue, the need here is humility. It's Christ-like humility. And as I said at the, the start, Humility is often something that we have to be disciplined into because we all know this, don't we, that pride is so very stubborn and resistant. Humility requires us to recognize that there is no one below us. Not a single one here is beneath you this morning. If in keeping with Philippians 2, we consider everyone more important, more significant than ourselves, then there is no place in the household of God for condescension. Can you imagine? Can you, can you imagine? We see glimpses of it here very often, don't we? But we know there's room to grow in humility. Can you imagine a household whose defining mark is everyone considering the needs of others more important, more significant? Than their own. See, the believer united to Jesus lives a life out of Christ, a life of humility, not pride, a life of attentiveness, not obliviousness. In fact, the one united to Jesus is very often preoccupied with the needs of others and not his own, so much so that he or she is willing to go without so that his brother or sister may be filled. Now, please don't think that this simply means, you know, giving money or providing food. It means nothing less than giving of our very selves. Christian giving must look like Christ's giving. And Christ didn't just fill a bank account. He didn't just put a plate on a table. He gave of his very self. That is what true Humility looks like an action. And so as we consider Deuteronomy 23 and 24, can we, can we hear those words that we read earlier from Philippians 2? Can we hear them in a fresh way? Can we see the, the model of humility that is set before us in Christ's self-emptying of himself and, and coming in the form of a servant and, and going all the way to the point of death on a cross in order that we might be lifted up with him. It is without a doubt, without a doubt, 
that Deuteronomic law is the impulse for a specific, particular humility in the body of Christ. It is without a doubt, I'm convinced, that the specificity of these rules in Deuteronomy give rise, in fact, to what Paul says in Philippians 2, to count others more significant than yourself. You care for the oppressed. You do not take advantage. You keep your word. You share what you have. You pay what is due. You don't treat people like property. You treat them as creatures of dignity because that is, in fact, what they are. You remember the call in Hebrews to outdo one another in showing honor to each other. That is to be a distinguishing mark of the household of faith. And and brothers and sisters, if this does not come to expression in the nitty-gritty details of our lives, then it doesn't come to expression at all. If, if this doesn't affect the way that we, that we live together, if we do not take an interest in one another, if we do not respond to one another, sacrifice for one another, then we have yet to learn humility. And we're still stuck in pride. To be concerned for one another in this way is the only life God is interested in. You hear that? To be concerned, a life of humility is the only life God is interested in. Why is that? Well, it's because we have been, we have been united to Christ, who is the living embodiment of Deuteronomy and its concern for the vulnerable and the poor. Think about it. Christ, who had all things unlike us, became poor in order to give us everything. Christ who who dignified the needy by going out of his way in order to care for us. Christ who had all things but deliberately chose against humiliating us and instead sought to experience humiliation in order to lift us up. This is the Jesus we belong to. This is the Christ that we confess because we belong to this Jesus. And because this Jesus must be glorified in his body, no one who belongs to him can live for themselves. No one who belongs to him can live unto themselves. Instead, we jealously and relentlessly look after the well-being of one another. This is what the life, this is what life in Christ looks like. And all of its nitty-gritty details, brothers and sisters, and, and all of this is anticipated throughout the book of Deuteronomy. Those, those who belong to God's people live proactively for their neighbor, respecting the dignity of those that God has dignified by his grace. So brothers and sisters, by the grace of God, may we increasingly be such a people. Let's pray. Our our Father, we, we pray that the grace of our humble but now exalted Lord might thrive among us. We thank you that 
In this summons uh, to love and obedience, we, we see more of the splendor of what Jesus Christ has done for us. We pray that we might become more like him. We thank you that in him we are forgiven for falling so very short. We pray that as forgiven and redeemed sinners, that we would grow to become more and more like our elder brother, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.